Okay, so we are looking today at um, a very particular thing within the catechism, but the position of government and government law. So let's first of all remember what we looked at last week. So last week, no, not last week, last lecture, we went through a lot of paragraphs in the catechism as wanting to you know, point out to you how, in the vision of the catechism, society is structured, how we had as the basis the dignity of the human person, that the human person is inherently communal in the image of the Trinity, um, we talked about with that the the common good this thing that isn't just the individual um, but is the common good and that it's a thing that is ordered towards the flourishing of the members of that society we talked about the responsibility of the common good for the common good how Government exists to serve the common good. It doesn't exist to serve itself. That's the measure of whether a government is a good government or a bad government, whether a leader is a good leader or a bad leader. We talk about participation. I made the point to you that the word democracy doesn't appear in the catechism. Um, but there is this thing called participation. Um, and one of the ways a society can be ordered for people to participate in it is through uh, democratic elections. And that the common good of a society depends on the participation of its members. Uh, we talked about subsidiarity. which, you know, that there are many levels within a society. Um, it's not just government and the individual. Um, that there is, as the primary cell structuring society, the family. Um, then I said, you know, things like your Cub Scouts group, your hiking club, um, all kinds of different groups that are part of how a society functions, how the common good of society needs all of these groups, these intermediate, intermediate layers. And then the church. And the church-state relationship. Um, and that, in a sense, is where we come to our focus today and thinking about what is the basis of a civil law, government law. And do you all know what the, in historically the word, the confessional state means? Confessional state in the sense of confessing as in um, proclaiming, stating that you confess your faith, you profess your faith. In the English language, those two words are fairly interchangeable in that context. The notion of the confessional state is where the state itself adopts an official religion. And in most of Christian existence, we've existed under different forms of confessional state. So after Constantine, the emperors 
were explicitly Christian, the empire was explicitly Christian. Roman Empire fell, then you had many in Christendom, many individual kingdoms where the individual kings were Christian, sought explicitly to build their nation on Christian laws and would have looked to the church to guide them in the formulation of those laws. Now we now exist in a democracy. Um, from the French Revolution onwards, democracy's been um, a thing that's kind of been pitted often against the church. So let me put to you, in a sense, a rhetorical question. Is the church now frustrated by democracy and just yearning for the day when we can get back to the confessional state, when we can get back to a situation where the president proclaims Catholicism to be the religion of our nation, um, when the papal ambassador has an office in the White House, um, is this something the church is tolerating, this democracy thing? Or is this a thing that actually the church is happy with? Yes, do you see these two possibilities? And you will, in Catholic writers, find different authors either explicitly or implicitly arguing from those perspectives. Either that this is something we're enduring until we get an official Catholic state again, or a vision, as I'm going to try to articulate, I think is easier to remedy with the catechism, a vision of democracy, but laws within that democracy that actually take their inspiration um, based on truth, based on the natural law, and therefore just naturally looking to the church and the guidance of that formulation. So, question today, civil law, um, now, have you all had time to read the lecture notes? I suggested you did that. So, are we okay in a sense that if I just briefly overview the pages rather than reading them through? Are we okay with that as a format today? Uh, and that then gives us some time to discuss the application of them. And if you have noted, the next assignment question is on today's topic, but today's topic as it, as it is particularly applied to the question of same-sex marriage. So is a same-sex marriage as a civil law, you know, where does that sit in our Catholic understanding? So let's first consider what is the basis of a civil law. Um, and I flagged up three possibilities there. One that it is consensus. One day I will learn to spell. I need Microsoft's spell check up here, don't I? Um, one is its consensus. That, you know, what do you have as a law? You, well, basically what everybody agrees, what everybody thinks, that's the basis of a law. 
if you've got something that's controversial, that there is a agreement, then that wouldn't be a law. That that would be the basis. And in that worldview, politicians should be repeatedly looking to opinion polls. What do the people want? Power is another vision of what law is about. So you're kind of, kind of a Marxist interpretation of law, views everything about power and power struggles between different blocks and one will imposing its, one group imposing its will on another. Well, that's one way people think about law, that it's just an imposition, it's a matter of power. Now, another model that is more sophisticated and that you will probably find lawyers in your future parishes if they're trying to have an intelligent conversation with you about the basis of law, they'll probably flag up this as the whole model of what law is. So lawyers deal in contracts all the time. And one model of the notion of law is to say, well, it's just a contract. It's what we all agree to as a society. And the mechanism by which we agree to it is through democratic elections, but it's, a, it's just a society-wide contract that we're then bound to in the same way that you'd be bound to a contract you sign. Yeah. What are most of the distinction between consensus and contract? Um, I think this is just a more formalized expression, so it's not that different. Now, as I noted in the, on my pages there, the problem with any of these is it doesn't give a basis for what we, judging what we call an unjust law. And pretty much anybody you meet has this concept that there are laws that aren't right, that there are laws that are unjust. Why do we campaign to change laws? Because some laws are unjust. Now, none of these gives you a basis for saying a law is unjust. If it's the consensus, well then, that's not a matter of justice. It either is or isn't the consensus. If it's been voted through Congress in a contractual your form and yet everybody agrees there are unjust laws so what's your criteria for saying a law is unjust so the catechism as I quoted it quotes St. Thomas and St. Thomas gives as is quoted there um, a definition of law So it's an ordinance of reason for the common good made by authority or whoever is responsible for the common good and then promulgated. So if Trump, as president, 
the authority issues a decree, an ordinance, for the common good, and it's a, a wise decree. It is of reason. But it doesn't go through Congress, then it isn't promulgated, it isn't a law. Conversely, if something does go through Congress, so you have authority, it is promulgated, um, it is an ordinance, but it's not for the common good, and therefore with that is not true reason, then again, according to St. Thomas's definition, it's not a, a true law. It's an unjust law. Do you know any you know, in philosophy, any definition, if you fail to satisfy all the conditions, it's not a law. All kind of with us on this point, this, at our basics. So, moving on to this, let's just glance through the second page then. So what I've done on the next few pages, as you'd have read, I've broken down each of those elements and given a description of what each of those elements are. So first, that it's civil law must be an ordinance of right reason. So St. Thomas uses this phrase, right reason, um, just almost a tautology. Reason, if it is reason, is right. Um, but right reason is distinguishing it from crazy reason, because there are crazy reasoning people there. Joshua, can you read the catechism quote at the top there? The exercise of authority is measured morally in terms of its divine origin, its reasonable nature, and its specific object. No one can command or establish what is contrary to the dignity of persons and the natural law. So the catechism is there saying your civil law, what Congress passes, has to be based in the natural law. What is it going to be based in if it's not based in the natural law? It's based on what we are as human beings, on our human nature. This is what the natural law is. Now, one of the um, major American theologians on natural law and on church-state relations is a chap footnoted in the next quote there, Russell Hissinger. Um, Um, and he quotes what I say there. Uh, human laws determine that jura left indeterminate by natural law. Jura meaning justice, legal framework. So there are lots of things that are in the natural law in a kind of general way. But in any particular society, you somehow need to make it specific in order for it to be workable, applicable. So I give the example of theft there. Well, the natural law says that theft is a sin. But how are you going to make that work in a particular context? Well, you've got to define property in a legal structure. You've got to define theft and the violation of property in a legal structure. With that, you're going to define the penalties for theft. So there are lots of things that law specifies, but it's specifying things that are rooted in a basis in the natural order. 
So if it's contrary to the natural law, it's not a law. Questions, comments on that point? So, when we have our friendly evangelical Protestants, and they, with us as Catholics, are campaigning for something to be in Congress, whether it's an abortion law or something else, they are frequently our allies in the struggle, yeah? But they will be saying, Bible, 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 yeah? And that means when they are arguing in the public square, it's actually very difficult for us to be with them, because how do you tell someone who doesn't believe in the Bible that they should have a law that's based on the Bible? I think that's it's right to point out that doesn't seem fair to them. The Catholic position is to say, no, it's about reason. And therefore, we can require it of all of the citizens because it's based in reason. It's based in your human nature. And so it should be in the law for the whole of society whether you believe in God or not, whether you accept the Bible or not. So that our Protestant friends are arguing on a different basis and sometimes they make our position difficult to articulate. Not to mention the fact that on something like abortion, um, if they're basing everything on the Bible, uh, I often think it's amazing how solid the evangelicals will be on abortion, given that actually it's fairly vague on where in the Bible that is. It is there, it is scriptural, but um, whereas we base it in reason, base it in human nature, an analysis of what it means to be a human. Okay, so next little section B, the need for authority in civil laws. So this is kind of pretty obviously flowing from what we were talking about on Monday. What day of the week is it now? Friday, but we were talking about on Friday, it's now Tuesday, sorry. Um, so we said the Bible tells us, fear God and honor the emperor. Um, that we need society because we're fallen. We need society also because we're social. Um, and so the point I make there, I see morally obligatory obedience. So there are things we should obey the government, not just because we fear getting caught, but because it is a moral duty. I am a Christian. Therefore, I am obliged to obey the law of the land. Cheating on my tax returns isn't just te cheating the government, it's cheating God. Society has a right to demand that I contribute, that I pay my taxes. So one of the things you as a priest should periodically preach on is honesty in your tax returns. It's not the most exciting sermon, um, but it is part of our duties to society. 
Can I give the example of speed limits? So I can remember spending a summer in Montana about 16 years ago now, and they'd only just introduced speed limits. Um, and the, the people there were outraged that they were being limited to 90 miles an hour on the highway. Um, you know, who's the government to tell me what to do? Well, the common good um, is reasonable to have regulations on things. Now, sometimes those regulations are excessive. That is part of evaluating true reason. Um, but the example I give there, that with a speed limit, the legislator will usually have some what we call wiggle room in the mind, in the intention of the legislator. That is what the legislator is intending. So I gather we're driving here, that there's kind of a, a 10 mile wiggle room. So if the speed limit's 75, you won't get pulled over if you're going 80. Am I right? Depends on, uh, yeah, it, okay. Um, so that wouldn't then. Why would it provide wiggle room for giving you a number anyway? that the number isn't arbitrary, but the number, it does seem to be pretty common in lots of societies that there's a wiggle room around whatever speed limit they put. So my point is in terms of your moral duty is according to the intention of the legislator, which gives you a bit of wiggle room if the legislator is intending wiggle room. If he isn't, then you don't have that wiggle room. The laws allow for like air, like for instance, like when you're driving, you, your, your speedometer could give you false error if you're doing the right thing. That's a legal question and out of my... I've, I've heard that the uh, radar guns are calibrated plus or minus 5% or something like that. And so that's also within the speed limit, the, the limit of what they're going to pull you over for. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but my basic point is these laws from the government aren't just we obey because we're afraid, we're afraid to get caught, but actually we do have a duty to obey the government. It's there for the common good. Um, if it's properly promulgated, if it isn't wildly, obviously contrary to human dignity, we should follow it. Section C, order to the common good. Now I gave two examples there of laws that might not be ordered to the common good. I said laws that are designed to protect the rich or laws that are designed to protect certain um, special interest groups. And I gave the example of unions there. So, generally speaking, um, church social doctrine talks about the right of association, the right of being in a trade union. That if an employer refuses to give you that right, that would be a violation of your rights. But we can also look at a number of examples in history, the 20th century, where trade unions can get so powerful that actually they, 
their members are protected, but the people in society who aren't members of those unions then suffer because the union is more powerful than society. So there needs to be a balance in the law between protecting trade unions for the sake of the members which serve society or overprotecting a special interest group of unions in a way that wounds the wider society, the mem people that aren't members of those trade unions. Tra tax breaks for the rich. So there is an economic argument that claims that if we give the rich tax breaks, then actually the society gets a healthier economy and everybody benefits. Now, if that is true, then tax breaks for the rich serves the common good. But if actually the tax breaks for the rich are because they this group funded my campaign to get me elected, then that isn't for the common good. That then would be an example of a law that is just corruption. So in either of those two examples, the point I'm trying to make is, does it serve the common good? That's the basis of evaluating a law. Suppose that there is a, a leader or president of some sort, not 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 directly polling this selection or anything, but just saying, let's say there is a president that, in order for him to be able to win the election of some sort, right, and it requires him to uh, institute a policy that would allow that would enable this money to come in for him to be a leader, because the alternative is contrary to the common good. His policies other person stands for or something is opposed to um, what the church stands for on some issues. Right, so like it, it's, it's necessary for him to facilitate some of these uh, tax rates for him to be in office or an authority. Would it then be for the common good if the leader is Is what you're saying that so Biden knows that if he gets elected, that will serve the common good better than Trump. Right. So therefore, Biden agrees to be corrupt and to give some deals for certain people who have funded his election because he knows he will then serve the common good better than Trump. Is that? Right, because assuming that <coughs> the tax break is not is corrupt. So that the tax break itself isn't for the common good, but him granting it to get elected is for the common good. To institute policies that enable the common good. That all becomes very not clear. Right. Um, and I'm guessing more, well, more than one politician has justified in right. his own mind that very argument. Um, I think you'd have to say the law itself would not be just. But there are degrees of unjust laws, which is kind of heading on to our next point. So let's turn over the page to the question of unjust laws.
So did your pick up this phrase, an unjust law as an act of violence? This is a very powerful term. It's in the Catechism, it's in St. Thomas, um, it was used by Pope John XXIII also in his writings on social justice. It's a very powerful term. What is an unjust law? It's an act of violence. It's those with power imposing on the rest a thing that is not just. That is an act of violence. Now you don't respond to every act of violence by shooting the guy. Yeah, somebody. So that just because something is unjust, just because something is an act of violence, we then need to figure out what's the appropriate response to it. Now, there on the page, another powerful phrase, this phrase from John Paul II, caricature of legality. Max, would you mind reading that quote from Evangelion Vitae for us? Really, what we have here is only the tragic character of legality, a democratic ideal which is only true such when it acknowledges and safeguards the dignity of every human person. This is trained in its very foundations. When this happens, a process leading to the breakdown of a genuinely human coexistence and the disintegration of the state itself has already begun. To claim the right to abortion, Fantasize and euthanasia, and to recognize that right and wrong means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. A caricature of legality. So it does have the structure of legality. It's been through the courts, it's been through Congress, the president's given it his stamp. It has legal structure, but JP2 is saying it fails these things. It's not for the common good. It's contrary to true reason, and therefore it's only a caricature of legality. To give to the powerful the right to trample on the rights, the right to life of the most vulnerable, the unborn, the sick and infirm in, in euthanasia, this is an abuse of power, it's not justice. What is uh, Killing infants. Um, some years down the road when you do bioethics, um, pretty much every ethicist who argues for abortion also argues for infanticide. That the newborn infant it's not rational, it's not self-conscious, it's no more than a dog. So, you know, you shouldn't be cruel to a dog, but a dog doesn't have a right to life. You can kill the unborn child, you can kill the child who's born infanticide. As I'm sure you're all aware, on all kinds of procedural levels, um, abortions that fail and the child is born alive anyway, there are, in many cases, legal protections to enable the doctor to then kill the child, which would then be infanticide, not abortion.
John Paul II spells out uh, in terms of, you know, there are people out there who call themselves Catholic, think they're Catholic, but then campaign for abortion. Um, so JP2 says, in the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never licit to obey it or, and here's the point, take part in a propaganda campaign in favour of such a law or to vote for it. So your Catholic member of Congress cannot vote for that law. Philosophy is going to be coherent with right reason. You can't say, well, my constituents say so. Right reason, based on human nature, that's the basis of law. Not, if I vote for it, they'll vote me out at the next election. And our parishioners, if they are campaigning for it, they're contrary, St. Um, John Paul II is saying, to his teaching. Um, now let me make a distinction. There's a difference between a parishioner campaigning, say, for Biden because they think Biden's going to make a more just social economic climate, or a parishioner who is campaigning for Biden because Biden is going to bring in more permissive abortion laws. That would be a very morally problematic position for that parishioner to be in. And that's what is being referred to here. And I think this is one of the things we as priests have to be pointing out. If you vote for someone who is for abortion laws, you at the very least can't be voting for them for that reason. Comments? I'm putting at this base level here a, a slightly easier criteria to say that can't be the reason you're voting for them. And if, if both candidates oppose different parts of church teaching, so one is in favour of the death penalty but against abortion, the other is in favour of abortion but against the death penalty, these are both pro-life issues. Um,
to rephrase your question, to take, un, to take innocent life is always what's called intrinsically evil. Um, simply killing somebody isn't intrinsically evil. So in self-defense, in war, um, there are circumstances where the act is not killing for killing's sake, but the act is self-defense. So the principle of um, double effect we touched on earlier in the semester, um, I'm defending myself with a degree of force that kills the person attacking me, but I'm not killing them because I want them dead. The next little section here, the Christian and civil society. Now, um, the basic point here is where are, and so on one level are politicians, so a Catholic politician, are they able to say, well, this is my role as a politician. The fact that I'm a Catholic has, you know, I just can't bring that into my voting record. Well, the church says here, well, yes, on one level, the lay sphere is different from the clerical sphere, but you don't stop being a Christian when you enter Congress. You have to be coherent. Um, so the Christian civil society, I say, the lay sphere has a rightful autonomy from religious leaders. So the congressman says, you as my bishop don't have the right to tell me how to vote. Now, there's a sense in which the politician is right to say that. But the lay sphere does not have a rightful autonomy from morality. So if the bishop is pointing out the moral law you are failing on is this one, that also is the bishop's role. But the moral law gets particular and detailed, the more that is then the politician's role, not the bishop's. The bishop can point out the moral law, not the civil law. And there's a footnote there, footnote 11 um, from John Paul II again, um, put in bold there. It is a question of the lay Catholic's duty to be morally coherent, found within one's conscience, which is indivisible. There can be no two parallel lives. Okay, that was an, an important criteria. You will, I am sure, have occasions when you have a parishioner who is also a politician. They will probably avoid having you talk to them, but if you do, this is an important point. You can't have two parallel lives. You are one person. Comments? Yeah. There was a parishioner in our my own parish that was running for government and supporting abortion and our pastor apparently asked him to not present himself for communion and told him not to participate in any public way in the parish. And did he have the backing of his bishop? Uh, I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, church teaching on the question of 
applicability to receiving Holy Communion is a little less specific. So to say the politician is failing as a Catholic by campaigning for abortion, voting for abortion, to spell that out in terms of therefore you may not present yourself for Holy Communion. I think a pastor, I think I would do the same as your pastor, but I, I would point out it's, it's less explicit in church documents to be making that connection. There's, there's public scandal if somebody is seen to be and publicly voting and campaigning for something that is that egregiously contrary to human dignity. Max? Well, this example of the Christian civil society talks about the lay spirit, right? Um, well, a common example or a common argument nowadays is that the cleric should be some kind of authority, right? Or there should be church should be in a level of authority where politics do indeed the church should be inclined to some kind of political structure because precisely from there it can constitute morality that is for the sake of the common good so and I've asked this question before but like the, the relationship between church and state in this specific example wouldn't we say that the church does foster morality in that regard I don't think in any current documents the church is calling for its clergy to have a political role. Um, so it, it is our role to speak the truth, to speak doctrine, to enunciate what is right reason and the natural law. But it isn't our role to tell politicians how that gets incarnated in so many different permutations that are possible. So the Second Vatican Council talks about the dignity of the laity, talks about the role and vocation of the laity to sanctify the temporal order. Sanctifying the temporal order is not the job of the clergy. It's our job to inspire them, to lead them, to teach them so that they may do that. But sanctifying the temporal order is part of what making civil laws is. So it isn't the role of the church to be dictating civil law. So um, that quotation here, could you read that for us? So the last quotation on page, at the bottom of page four, the rightful autonomy. The rightful autonomy of the political or civil sphere from that of religion and the church, but not from that of morality. The value that's been attained and recognized by the Catholic Church and belongs to the inheritance of contemporary civilization. So I made this point in our last lecture. Um, church and state being separate the CDF is arguing that this is a Christian thing. So historically, pretty much all around the world, different religions, there is a blending of religion and government. And that actually it is the achievement of Christianity to recognize these as two distinct things. Interrelated, um, but distinct. But 
the church has a duty to say this is an unjust law. So, what do we do when there is an unjust law? So, page five. So I pointed out some principles there. Authority doesn't derive moral legitimacy from itself. It comes ultimately from God. Blind obedience does not suffice to excuse. So none of us were alive in the Nuremberg trials after the Second World War. But when the Nazis were put on trial for what they did, their acts, their crimes against humanity, particularly with the Jews, the concentration camps, um, one of their defences was, well, I was only following orders. I was only doing what I'd been commanded. And the Nuremberg trial said, that's not good enough. What you did was you know, so evil, any human being should have refused to go along. Which is that point there, the Catechism, blind obedience does not excuse. To just say, well, it's the law of the land, doesn't excuse. Now I note that disobedience can sometimes cause circumstantial evils that imply obedience is preferable. So if I disobey and others see me disobey, they might then disobey other laws on many other things so that my disobedience destabilizes society. So sometimes I might obey a law that in itself is wrong, unjust, because my disobedience would cause more harm than my obedience. But as I say there in bold, unjust laws, the phrases don't bind in conscience. They bind because of the effects of disobedience, but they don't bind in themselves. Does that make sense as a distinction? I'm not obeying because it is the law. I'm obeying because my disobedience would destabilize society. Do we need an example of that? Let me take an extreme example. Um, someone who performs abortions. They are committing, I would say, a crime against humanity. And if at some future state there is the equivalent of Nuremberg war, war trials, they could plead, well, I was only following the law of the land. But that wouldn't change the fact what they were doing was taking someone's life, taking innocent life. Um, now, does that mean I would now be justified in getting my gun and shooting an abortionist. So that would be civil disobedience, that would be taking an unjust law, taking something that is a public evil being done, but my civil disobedience um, causes, I would argue, a greater damage to society than my accepting that evil, that unjust law. That it isn't for me to take the law into my own hands, 
sins, even when the law is inherently unjust. Sam? Mind if I jump back? Yeah, sure. Lay sphere, yeah. and then we have the Catholic sphere, I guess, so the clerical sphere. I'd want to distinct the lay sphere and the clerical sphere. Okay. Both are Catholic. Right. Yeah. Right. The clerical sphere shouldn't engage in the lay sphere. Okay. Shouldn't dictate. Okay, because that's why I'm having trouble putting this in my mind of clerical sphere should stay out of dictating in the lay sphere. But then, in the same sentence we said, well, you have a duty to talk about unjust laws. So it's like, that sounds like you're saying that the lay sphere and the clerical sphere kind of intersect a little bit, in some cases. They definitely would engage, so they're not disconnected. Um, but they are distinct. So the church forbids clerics from holding political office. So I, I can't run for Congress, even if I wanted to, even if you vote for me, um, because the church wants my clerical stuff to be taken seriously. It doesn't want it polluted with, so we talk about prudential judgments. So there are lots of judgments that The law of God doesn't give an answer left or right. Um, so, and if I mix prudential judgments with my doctrinal judgments, then I risk undermining the authority I have to teach doctrine as a priest on other occasions. So what should be the punishment for someone who performs an abortion? I think that is a fair question to leave in the hands of the lay sphere. To be saying should abortion be legal is a, a matter of such clear violation of these principles, not in a matter of prudential judgment, but in a matter of um, human rights that we as a priests do speak clearly I would hope on that you will have later courses on social doctrine per se um, theology level this probably is a more detailed question to be coming back to at that stage Back to page five, this thing about obeying a law that in itself is unjust. So 
the law is unjust, but I obey it in order to not cause civic disturbance, because that would cause more damage than my obedience would cause. Does that make sense as a criteria? And the damage that's being caused is most frequently scandal. People see me as a supposedly good person disobeying the law and then they disobey the law and other things. Yeah, I think there'd be lots of details that are spelling that out, but that my civic disobedience would cause more harm than the good I was seeking to pursue. So yes, the law is unjust. I tolerate it because not tolerating it will cause more damage than my tolerating it. But I protest against it by the fact I'm outside the abortion clinic to begin with. So I'm outside the clinic, I'm obeying the law, I'm protesting against it by the fact I'm there, I am making a stand for justice, for truth, but I'm not breaking the law and undermining the coherence of what I'm trying to do, and not undermining the common good of society by causing civic disturbance. Okay, let's look at some examples on page six. Now you've all read through these examples? So, you know, when the church started out under pagan Rome, you were required by law to sacrifice to the idols. That is not a law you may do as a Christian. This is in St. Thomas's category there. Um, contrary to the divine law. We've already talked about Nazi genocide. Similarly, that is contrary to the divine law because it directly attacks one of the Ten Commandments, the right to life. And at Protestant Reformation, you know, my country, England, um, the king, the law of the land forbade the Catholic practice. You know, many Catholics were pressured to conform, that would be an example. You cannot say, well, it's an unjust law, but I will conform for the sake of the common good. No, because that would be going contrary to the divine law itself. And our COVID-19 context, you know, there's a fine line being crossed multiple times in different countries over this. Um, I'm sure 10 years from now we'll all be very wise after the effects. Um, I say good examples show the church and state working together over those hygiene regulations. 
and I think there are a number of examples where the state is taking power into its hands that are contrary to the power it has. But if you as a bishop disobey it, are you going to cause more civil unrest than actually the good you're seeking to defend? And that's going to depend on a lot of variables. How serious is the disease? How many people are dying? How many people are dying here? Armed resistance against unjust laws. So we take things a step further, and there are not just a few unjust laws, but multiple unjust laws, such that <coughs> the state of the government itself no longer warrants um, the obedience of its subjects or its citizens. Um, and there comes a stage, the Catechism says, when armed resistance to oppression is legitimate. Now, we'll later in the semester look at the conditions for the just war as articulated in the Catechism. They parallel this. Um, so we'll look at that in more detail later. But it's got to be serious rights that are uh, uh, being threatened by the government. notice what I said about tyrannicide so tyrannicide is when you kill a tyrant the tyrant is no, no longer has a right to live by definition the tyrant is opposing the common good the tyrant is performing a continual act of violence against his subjects you have the right not the duty to remove them with the lethal force but in seeking to do that you need to be asking yourself will you replace that tyrant with a better system or just more chaos so saddam hussein when we got rid of him i don't think there's much doubt he was a tyrant he was opposing the common good of his people but it's pretty clear in retrospect that the process by which we got rid of him uh, failed to tick the box of replacing him with a a better serving of the common good. And so unless you have a plan, a reasonable, prudentially judged plan for better serving the common good when you remove the tyrant, you don't have a right to remove the tyrant. And when historically at least ethicists have looked at these questions, they're always concerned within your own country. So to actually go into somebody else's country and kill their tyrant is beyond your rights. You'd only be able to justify that if that tyrant was opposing your common good. So if he had had Saddam Hussein weapons of mass destruction, that would have been criteria, um, or might have been criteria. But generally speaking, the people of a nation can assassinate their own tyrant, rise up against him, but those leading that revolution should also have a plan for what they're going to do next. Yeah? So, like, 
let's say there's a tyrant who's just killing innocent people in some country. Another country doesn't have the right to go in and liberate those people from that suffering. Like, uh, maybe I'm giving more of an example, like genocide. Right. There's genocide going on by a tyrant, and like the Rwanda genocide here. Yeah. If we apply that principle, then we wouldn't be justified in going in and stopping that genocide. We'd have the people who are being killed. Is that, is that fair? I mean, I think that's the balance of issues there. I think that's why when the Vatican through the, that period was making various statements, there was a call for the United Nations to be making a resolution to intervene. So that it's not just America as one nation stepping into another nation, but with the authority of an international assessment going in with that. Now, if you're going to argue the United Nations is not fit for purpose, the United Nations is corrupt, the United... Um, I think an argument could be made that even in the absence of that, you could step in, but your ethical basis for doing so becomes less and less clear. So you're saying it's wrong to kill the tank? No, so the, the ethical analysis of St. Thomas Aquinas and, and many others would say, no, you, if, it, if you have a duty to kill the tyrant, but only if you've got a plan for a better state of affairs afterwards. Otherwise, you're just going to... Because you're killing the tyrant because he's opposing the common good. Well, if you don't have a better plan for the common good, you've got no right to get rid of him. which is another way of drawing attention that in all of these things we've been looking at, this criteria of the common good is pivotal. Not just, I think this is a good idea, how is it serving the common good? Okay, that leads me to the last thing for us to look at, which is the topic of your um, assignment. This particular example of homosexual, same-sex marriages, or same-sex civil partnerships. Now, there's two long block quotes. Um, let's start at the top of page eight with that block quotes. Are you all familiar with this phrase, de facto unions? So people who are not married, but are in some sense living together. So they're kind of like a husband and wife, but they haven't been through the process of living together. So. You know, I'm sure your generation, you have lots of friends who are living with partners that aren't married. One of them gets sick and goes into a hospital. When their partner turns up at the hospital wanting to visit them, are they able to get in? Or, well, you're not a spouse, so you can't get in. So they are in a de facto union, as it's called. Do they have the same rights as people who are married? Or do we say, actually, the whole thing about marriage is you choose marriage because you want to have this relationship that has these rights. And if you don't choose that, then why would you get the rights that come with marriage?
So the point in that text that the church is arguing is the society gives marriage certain benefits because marriage serves society. Society needs children for a future. Society needs a stable place for children to be raised. Therefore, society needs marriage. So I repeat that threefold point. Society needs new children. Society needs a stable place where children can be raised. And therefore, society needs marriage to further that. Do you all need me to repeat that? So historically, we can see lots of examples where a society crumbles and decays because it doesn't have children. So ancient Rome reached a stage in its affluence and decline when people didn't have children. You know, we can understand the dimension. Rich bachelors didn't want to have children. They wanted to live the bachelor life, um, and their society crumbled because there was a lack of the next generation. Who's going to lead the army against the barbarians if there are no children? Who's going to lead? Society needs children. So even under the pagan emperors, so Augustus introduced laws trying to get people to have, marry and have children because society needs it. So society gives benefits, and Augustus did, even before Christianity, gives benefits to married couples in order to help society. Now, if you give those same benefits to couples that aren't married, well, you have an asymmetrical benefits. So society is benefiting marriage so that marriage, by having children, will benefit society. But if you're just handing out that benefit to any couple that are living together for whatever short-term basis, they're not serving society in the same way back. And you therefore indirectly damage marriage. It ceases to, you cease to benefit marriage if everybody else gets the same benefits that marriage gets. Have you all heard this argument articulated before? So it's the same point about a same-sex marriage. So even apart from the morality of two men being together, they being together don't serve the common good the way that a husband and wife married or just towards children serve the common good. So those two men living together, just they don't have the rights because they're not serving the common good the same way marriage does. And if you give them the same rights as the law in this land now does, 
what you've effectively done is you've effectively abolished marriage in law. Yeah, so that is a, a key kind of background issue. So the, the question is, well, same-sex couples can adopt children. And there are children out there who would have nobody to look after them if they weren't adopted at least by a same-sex couple. So you have to be articulating why a same-sex couple is not a good environment for a child. And that then does take us... Um, into an, an analysis of homosexuality, of the need for a child to have that complementarity that a father and mother bring. So it's tragic when you have an orphan who lacks the father-mother upbringing at home, but to deliberately bring that about by putting a child in the care of a same-sex couple is not the same as a couple losing that when one of their parents dies. Sam? I don't want to be that guy, but to play that with advocate, in that argument, what if somebody were to say to you that the complementary of man and woman is a gender or a societal construct? That's a, very, that's a very common way to go. It is, yeah. It is, and it is the standard line we get thrown against us. Um, so this is one of the things in the sexual morality course, at theology level 701, we've been looking at this semester. Um, you've got to point to the science that indicates children raised without a father and mother um, statistically they're more likely to have various problems that there is something about having both at home that just accords with our human nature and that is statistically significant enough to claim that's just a social construct just isn't coherent and when you're arguing with people some people see that even without you having to articulate if they don't see that there's a loss in our position they're not going to see. Do you have enough in these texts to be writing a assignment on this? I am hoping for something intelligent from you on this. So you've got a series of points here to be articulating in the assignment, but there is a particular application here with same-sex marriages. And I make the point briefly on that page. I think Pope Francis was misquoted on this. Um, I think there's undoubtedly the case that the Vatican Press Office is corrupted in the sense of failing to serve its function. And there are clearly some people in that that are seeking to undermine church doctrine. 
But I think Pope Francis himself was misrepresented in that documentary. They cut and spliced his words um, to make him say something I don't think was in his original intention. Okay, so we've been talking about the basis of civil law, looking at how the catechism quotes St. Thomas and what that definition means and how it's rooted in any decree needs to be based on reason, right reason, to serve the common good, properly made by authority and promulgated, and if it's against the common good, it's not a true law.